everybody, and welcome to today's presentation of the Addiction Counselor Exam Review. We're going to be talking about models of treatment. Over the next little while, we're going to review the premises of behavioral self-control, dialectical behavior therapy, the matrix model, motivational enhancement, family behavior therapy, medication-assisted therapy, relapse prevention, and harm reduction approaches. So basically what we're talking about in this presentation are the psychological models of treatment. If you believe in the biological model, then obviously you're not going to be looking at behavioral self-control. You're going to be looking at pharmacotherapy or something else. So what is the psychological model? Well, basically, the premise of this model is that addiction and mental health issues result from deficits in learning. We don't learn the coping skills we need. We don't learn... Um, how to become aware of what we need. We don't learn effective communication skills, etc. Deficits in thinking, which are our cognitive errors, or deficits in emotion regulation, where you go from zero to 150 in, you know, no time flat. And it can be any combination of these things. So the psychological or self-medication model basically posits that there are a bunch of different approaches. You can look at behavioral self-control. You can look at individual and group counseling that have, have multiple evidence-based practices. And then you can also look at pharmacotherapy, especially for mental health issues, but also in some cases for substances. Now, we know that medication-assisted, there are only medications that are out there right now for nicotine, alcohol, and opiates. Some other medications have been shown to be moderately effective with some other drugs, but they're not FDA approved for that yet. So let's move on. So behavioral self-control training is exactly what it sounds like. It helps people strengthen their internal mechanisms, their self-awareness, in order to control their behavior. It also helps them establish external controls. So when I feel this way, what can I do? What tools do I have in my toolbox to help me control this emotion, this urge, this feeling, this thought. So behavioral self-control teaches coping skills, goal setting. It helps people develop behavioral contracts. So what kinds of things would you contract for? You would contract for helping people um, stay clean and sober. You would contract for when the person is feeling anxious, what will they do? Behavioral contracting is a lot like treatment planning. We're developing a... Um, or relapse prevention planning, more like. Um, we're developing a uh, contract. When adversity steps in your path, what are you going to do? But behavioral contracting can also be used for positive behaviors. So encouraging the person, they're going to make a contract with you that they are going to get adequate sleep every night, that they're going to eat a healthy diet, that they're going to keep their therapy appointments. All of those things can be contracted. And when there is a contract, it helps people stay a little bit more on target, if you will, or on task. If they feel like they have made a promise or, a, um, or, or they told somebody else that they were going to do something. Behavioral self-control also helps people identify triggers that will cause a relapse. So we talk a lot about triggers in substance abuse counseling, in people, places, things, yada, yada, yada. We also need to pay attention to mental health triggers because when somebody's depressed, they're going to be more likely to relapse. When somebody's anxious or angry, they're going to be more likely to relapse. So what things trigger those mental health issues? And this can be people. 
this can be situations this can be times of day or holidays or just about anything that can trigger a substance relapse can trigger a mental health relapse but we need to make sure that neither one relapses because if they relapse with their addiction it's going to impact their mental health negatively if they relapse with their mental health it's going to set them up for a relapse in their addiction so we need to deal with both behavioral self-control also uses a tool called functional analysis and when we do a functional analysis what we're really doing is asking ourselves or asking the person what led up to this behavior and what is the function of this behavior so if Johnny's in the in the grocery store and he has a complete meltdown because he wants cocoa puffs and mom says no you can't have cocoa puffs well let's do a functional analysis what was it that he wanted was he hungry did he want you know did he just want cocoa puffs um, what was it what was the hoped for benefit of this behavior and how did we get to this point where he's throwing a tantrum well there may not be cocoa puffs in the house but maybe somebody maybe mom or grandma or you know somebody else has given in before and gotten him cocoa puffs when he threw a tantrum so it rewarded that behavior so a functional analysis remember asks what is the function of this behavior and how did we get to this point how what led up to throwing a full-out tantrum and so we can help figure out ways to intervene along the way because people's relapses what they identify as their relapse generally starts a long time before they pick up again or before they have their clinical depressive episode so we want to look back and see what the steps were that kind of led up to where we're at right now that way we can help the person identify early warning signs of relapse and intervene sooner and behavioral self-control takes all of this information coping skills goal setting contracting trigger management and functional analysis and puts it together to help people develop a relapse prevention plan which will look very similar for mental health and for substances if people are using substances or engaging in addictive behaviors it's going to mess with their neurotransmitters and make it harder for them to be happy make it harder for them to be emotionally balanced um, if people are having difficulty with their mental health it's going to be harder for them to stay clean and sober because they're feeling really lousy so we want to look at the things like vulnerability prevention making sure they're getting enough proper nutrition remember hungry angry lonely and tired we want to make sure that they've addressed all of those things so behavioral self-control is really a comprehensive system for helping the person develop the skills and tools they need identify when and how to use them and prevent as many problems as possible now dialectical behavior therapy is newer but a lot of us are really familiar with it why would you use dialectical behavior therapy well clients may unintentionally reward ineffective treatment while punishing their therapists for effective therapy so if we use DBT um, we're going to be more aware of that and if you think of when you've worked with a client before when you start pushing those buttons when you start getting into those tender emotional areas they may withdraw which punishes the therapist the therapist goes oh you know that makes me unhappy that this client withdrew from treatment because you know he was making progress but it got too painful and they hit the road now 
how do they reward ineffective treatment? Because clients keep coming. If you are not pushing those hot buttons and making them uncomfortable occasionally, then they may keep coming because they're like, okay, you know, I can do this. This isn't so bad. DBT helps therapists become aware of when a client is sort of lulling them into a false sense of laziness, if you will, because, you know, things seem to be going swell for the patient. Quite honestly, if patients don't occasionally get grumpy with you, you're probably not pushing them or finding all of the buttons. So dialectical behavior therapy encourages therapists to get together in a group once a week and do case staffing so you can get a fresh pair of eyes that may be saying that may be able to tell you you know what I, I think he's avoiding this path right here or I think this reaction of you know suddenly not showing up for appointments may be because you touched on this particular issue and in DBT there's a lot of functional analysis that goes on you're going to see overlap in these theories because DBT therapists really look at What's the function of this behavior? Is it they're not making progress and they're unhappy and they left? Is it because they left because they became too uncomfortable? Um, what are the reasons for this behavior? And how can we maybe create an environment that brings them back in or keeps them moving forward? The sheer volume and severity of problems presented by clients often makes it impossible to use the standard cognitive behavioral format. You know, some clients will present and they will have pain, they will have anxiety, they will have depression, they will have PTSD, they will have cocaine abuse, they will have uh, a history of sexual abuse, they will have relationship issues. I could go on. And cognitive behavioral therapy is really awesome for addressing thoughts. But cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't help as much with some of the other biopsychosocial issues. So DBT can step in and help clients generalize some of those skills they're learning and develop more effective methods. Clients who have engaged in cognitive behavioral therapy found the focus on change in validating because we're telling them what you're doing right now is wrong. In cognitive behavioral therapy, it, often our unhelpful thoughts are called irrational thoughts. Well, you know, that's kind of hurtful if somebody says you're just being irrational, um, which is why I use the word unhelpful. But either way, in addiction, people have, may have difficulty with cognitive behavioral because addiction is a solution to a problem. It's a bad solution, but it's a solution to a problem. So if we're saying you're not making the right choice here, the person's going, I've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. So what am I supposed to do? Dialectical behavior therapy provides a lot of alternatives. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy often makes clients feel like their suffering is being underestimated or their therapists are overestimating their own helpfulness. So we need to make sure to validate the client's experience, help them, help them understand the function of their reactions, their urges, their behaviors, their thoughts. And figure out a better way, a more helpful way to help them meet their goals. You know, and that means we have to define or help the client define what their goals are. Not all clients want to stay clean and sober forever. You know, so let's look at what can we do in this particular situation. 
Overriding themes in DBT, mindfulness, helping people become aware of what they need, what their thoughts are, what their feelings are, and be aware of the difference between being in the emotional mind, which is the impulsive mind that typically reaches out for numbing, and the wise mind that can make more um, cognitive decisions based on facts that are before them. DBT teaches distress tolerance and urge surfing so people can get through those cravings. They can get through the emotional surges that may make them want to go use. It teaches emotion regulation so people learn how to dampen some of those surges a little bit by living healthier, getting enough sleep, getting um, proper nutrition, having positive social supports, etc., and finally, it teaches interpersonal effectiveness and problem solving, recognizing that a lot of people who have emotional dysregulation, who have, you know, emotional upheaval, have pushed away or overwhelmed people or felt like they have been abandoned by other people um, in the past. So we need to help them learn how to identify what they need and effectively communicate their needs so it's not overwhelming to the other person but so the other person can understand what's going on and can help them problem solve. The next model we're going to talk about is the matrix model for stimulant use. Now, this one has been generalized, I believe, for cannabis use as well. It's completely manualized. It's on the SAMHSA website. It is a 45-session treatment program. That's a long treatment program. Even if you're going five days a week, that's nine weeks every single day. So... 45-session treatment program that teaches people about issues critical to addiction and relapse. People receive direction and support from a trained therapist and become familiar with self-help programs. The therapist in the matrix model functions simultaneously as teacher, coach, both fostering a positive and encouraging relationship and empowering the person to make the next right step. Motivational enhancement therapy is the next technique, and you're going to be kind of surprised with this one. Um, it's designed to help resolve ambivalence about treatment and abstinence. Now, motivational enhancement therapy is different than motivational interviewing. Now, you use some motivational interviewing techniques when you do motivational enhancement therapy, but motivational enhancement therapy itself is a three to five session treatment program. That's it. Not 45, not a year, three to five sessions. Um, it helps resolve ambivalence about treatment and abstinence and empower people to make the next right choice for them. Therapy consists of an initial assessment battery followed by two to four individual sessions with the therapist. So obviously you're not probably doing weekly sessions here. You're going to do an assessment and then a follow-up and then probably your next appointment two weeks later and your next appointment a month later, etc. That way you're staggering the time. Motivational enhancement therapy. Your first treatment session consists of something called the frames approach. The person is provided feedback about the initial assessment. They're encouraged to take responsibility for their own actions, thoughts, and behaviors. We encourage them to elicit self-motivational statements, so recognizing what parts of this they have the ability and desire to change. And it strengthens motivation and builds a plan for change. So we're working with the client. We're not telling them, you need to do this. 
we're saying, okay, now that you've heard the good, the bad, and the ugly with the initial assessment, where is it that you want to go from here? And let's work together to make a plan. I'm not going to force you to do anything. We provide advice. You know, when you're making that plan, the client may not have all the tools that they need or may not be thinking of creative ways to use the tools they have. So we can provide information or advice about coping strategies for high-risk situations. We then provide a menu of options. We help them figure out, you know, in this big scheme of things, to address your goals, what is it that you need to do? You know, it's kind of like going to a restaurant and reading a menu and picking your first course, your second course, etc. Same thing is true here. We can say, all right, well, the first step you want to do is what? You have all these options out here. You can do self-help. You can do outpatient, intensive outpatient, residential. Um, what is it that you need? But we want to focus on things other than just treatment. We want to say, okay, what are your options for overcoming your obstacles? Notice I say obstacles, not barriers. You can scale obstacles. Barriers you can't get around. So what can you do? What are your options for working around the fact that you're, you're an hourly employee and if you're not at work, you don't get paid? So, you know, you can't be taking a whole lot of time off for treatment. What can you do to work around the obstacle of finances or childcare or, or whatever it is? So we help them identify the options and the resources they need. We provide empathy. This is a big step. No matter what problem they're addressing, this is a big step. You know, crisis causes change and change causes crisis. Whether you're trying to lose 20 pounds or get clean and sober or address your depression, you're going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to address some things that may make you uncomfortable for a little while. And it can be scary. A lot of people, when they start substance abuse treatment, are afraid they're going to relapse because that's what they hear everywhere. You know, you're going to relapse. You can't just start and work all the way through. Well, I'm here to dispel the myth that you cannot get through treatment without a relapse. People have done it. Does it happen a lot? No, but people have done it. We want to provide empathy for people because it's scary. We want to help them understand, you know what, if you relapse, if you slip, that's a learning opportunity and we can figure out how to prevent that in the future. And as you get healthier and happier, those slips and those regressions will be fewer and farther between. And we want to provide self-efficacy. That is, we want to encourage the client to believe they can make this change. When I work with people who are trying to quit smoking, a lot of times they're looking at me like, Doc, I don't, I don't know that I can do this. I've tried 17 times before and I failed every single time. What's going to make this time different? And so we want to inspire self-efficacy. We want to help them see how their motivation is different. We want to help them see how this situation is different than the past. But we also want them to look back over the past and realize how much strength they actually have. Maybe they stayed clean. They didn't smoke for six months. Well, that's great. You know, that was really hard. So you know you can do it. It's just a matter of building on what you've learned from past attempts to quit. In subsequent sessions, so this all takes place in the first session after the assessment. In subsequent sessions, the therapist monitors change, reviews the change strategies being used, and continues to encourage change. 
this is a lot of coaching here. You're not going to be delving into deep, dark issues um, that may be underlying behavior. Motivational enhancement therapy is not psychodynamic. You know, we're not going to be looking at how your childhood is impacting your present or resolving issues from childhood. We're going to be talking about focusing on behavior change and helping you see or helping the client see positive forward progress in achieving that goal. And there may be some things that are needed with that. There may be some counseling that goes with it. But remember, you've only got like four sessions to work with. So you're not going to be spending a lot of time like we do in humanistic or psychoanalytic approaches. Family behavior therapy has demonstrated positive results in both adults and adolescents. So SCORE, this one works with both age groups, addresses not only substance use and mental health problems, but also other co-occurring issues such as conduct disorder, child mistreatment, family conflict, unemployment, chronic pain, you know, the list can go on. Family behavior therapy involves having the patient along with at least one significant other, such as a cohabitating partner or parent, work together. So you don't have to have the whole family together. And a lot of times in addiction, it is not possible to get that whole family together because there are too many people who are hurting. And, you know, there are going to be some people who have their own stuff and they're not able to come to the table right now. But so it's the patient and at least one other person. Family behavior therapy combines behavioral contracting with contingency management. So you have the patient who says, I'm going to stay clean and sober, I'm going to start doing these positive health behaviors, yada, 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 makes the contract. And then you have the family member who is going to basically be the holder of that contract. And when things go well, you know, there are going to be contingencies that are applied, either additional privileges or rewards or whatever the case may be, whatever that person decides. When I work with families and we do family behavior therapy, I generally have the contract go both ways. So the person who's the identified patient also holds a contract on the loved one because loved ones are going to have to change their behavior too. When people are in dysfunctional relationships, you have one person who may kind of start it, if you will, but other 